Hello, and welcome to Walking with the Tengu, a podcast where we explore classic texts for the modern martial artist. We return to Viking story time as we continue the Vatenstel saga. As a reminder, our story last time saw the end of Hrolif the Bad Neighbor and his mother Liot the Witch. We got to see a little strategy in combat, and afterwards, the brothers divided up their father Ingemann's possessions, and the story moves on with Thorstein the Clear Successor. Today, let's get into the last parts of the saga. There were quite a few adventures for the next few generations, but let's focus in on a few that have martial lessons for us. The next tale involves a man called Thorolf Sledgehammer. He had been an inhabitant of the area for a while, and the saga says he was mentioned earlier, though at this point I don't recall when. Either way, he ended up developing into another source of trouble for the Vattenstahl region. He was known for thieving and generally causing trouble, so much so that the people of the area would say that no amount of badness from Thorolf would surprise anyone. He didn't have a group of people, or followers. You may recall this is how Agothi got his legitimacy and power. You might think of it as an informal democracy, one ruled with the consent of the governed, and bribes, I mean gifts, and being able to do violence to keep the peace. Yeah, you get the idea. Well, Thorolf didn't have any followers. What he did have was 20 enormous black cats that he controlled with magic. I'm not entirely sure how this even makes it into the story. There are certainly no large predatory felines in Iceland that I am aware of, though, get this, there are other stories about large magical black cats, including the Jóla Keturin, the Christmas or Yule cat, As with most folklore, it's not entirely clear where these stories come from or how long they've even been around. Scandinavian folklore does have tales about shamans who could conjure up a troll cat, and there are various folk tales about such creatures in late 18th century Scandinavia, a decidedly post-Viking era. Now, the sagas were written down well after the end of the Viking era, in this case, something like four to five centuries since the events described. Any game of telephone can show us how quickly misunderstandings and pure comical intent can warp an original message. But that, of course, changes when one exists in a society that not only values but hones poetry and oral history. Though I think it fair to remember these are real events that have gotten mixed up with folklore and legends. Of course, I have no way of knowing which came first, but given the timing of when the sagas were written down, Perhaps we are seeing here the beginning of such folklore entering Scandinavian stories. As was expected, the people got tired of Thorolf's misdeeds and appealed to the authority in the land, Thorstein. If there was any doubt from the last episode about who was really in power, well, now it's clear. Thorstein was expected to handle thieving evildoers with magic cats. Thorstein didn't really want to deal with it. It says that he didn't want to inflict this trouble on his men, or I should say the trouble that comes from this man of hell and his cats. It is interesting here, my translation uses the term hell, that's H-E-L, in reference to the Norse land of the dead. The unnamed supplicants call into question Thorstein's honor, and apparently that was motivating enough to get him to gather some men together. 
Thorstein wanted the advantage of numbers, so he got all his brothers and his Norwegian follower. If you've ever seen a Star Trek episode, and you see an away team beaming down with some unnamed crew members in red shirts, well, you know who's going to die in that mission at some point. And that is what an unnamed Norwegian follower is to the sagas. So this posse of 18 heads up to Slegjestadir, and unsurprisingly, Thorolf refuses to have anything to do with them. We're told that he could not abide, quote, good men. Thorolf sees the group approaching and heads back into his home. He sends all his cats out to block the doorway and rouse them up so that, and I quote, they were simply ferocious with their caterwauling and glaring, end quote. Yokul seems to have learned a little and matured since last we saw him, for instead of just charging in without a second thought, he suggests to Thorstein that it's time for Thorstein to come up with a good plan. Meanwhile, inside the home, Thorof builds a smoky fire, so that the interior of the house is filled with smoke and starts coming out the door. Thorstein tried the diplomatic approach first, as one does, and asks Thorolf to come out. Unsurprisingly, Thorolf refused and whipped up his cat bodyguards again. Yokul apparently hadn't learned too much patience, because having given Thorstein a chance, he now suggests they just charge in and ignore the cats. Thorstein is concerned for the safety of the group and reiterates that he'd rather get Thorolf to come out, so he told his men to put some fire up against Thorolf's house. Yokel grabbed a torch and threw it at the door, which was apparently enough to scare the cats, for they scattered, and the door to Thorolf's home slammed shut. The wind then takes over and fanned the flames to even greater heights. Thorstein moved his men to a position where the smoke would block them from view, and I'm guessing Thorolf was waiting for just such an opening, for when he couldn't see them, he burst out with two chests of silver, I imagine one under each arm. The Norwegian redshirt sees Thorolf escaping and gives chase down to a river. Beyond the river was a swamp, and at that point Thorolf turned, dropped his chests, grabbed the Norwegian in a headlock, and told him that if he wanted to race, they could race together and ran off into the swamp where they both sank, never to be seen again. Thorstein laments the loss of his Norwegian companion. However, seeing the chests of silver, Thorstein says that it will be a compensation for the loss of his follower, which actually sounds kind of cold, but it does give us some insight into just how much the blood feuds and payment systems of the time worked into their sense of justice. The tale ends telling us this is why the place is called Slegjustadir, which means something like the place of the sledgehammer, and that since then it has always been an ill-fated place where cats are sighted. If you go to Saga Map, or I should say the website, sagamap.hi.is, select the map for the Vatenstahl Saga and put in S-L-E-G-G, -G, you'll find it is now called Slegulakur, which I think is a variant of the name referring to a creek, so I suspect the land has changed a little in the intervening centuries. On the map, at least where the pin is dropped, it looks like it's someone's parking lot, possibly a farm, and I have to wonder if there are cats about to this day. In this short little tale, we see that Thorstein is reluctant to go up against Thorolf and his magic cats. Unlike prior tales, Thorolf's misdeeds seem to be limited to thievery as opposed to murder, 
As the successor to Ingmund, he was expected to keep the peace in the land, and apparently Thorolf's thieving had reached a point where enough people were done with him. And this is a theme I see consistently. <clears throat> There's a certain amount of allowance for misdeeds. People accept that some people are mean, obnoxious, annoying, and troublesome. It's only after a period of bearing with it that they eventually appeal to the authority for justice and protection. I'm not entirely sure why Thorstein was reluctant to deal with Thorolf, other than the likelihood of someone getting hurt. In the end, like with so much else in the sagas, honor is the motivating reason for following through. This might be a subtle lesson for most, if not all, warrior cultures. Doing what is right, even when the personal cost may be troublesome. Thorstein, again, reveals he is no dummy. He brings more men than he likely needs, 18 men for one man and his 20 cats. We're not told how big the cats are, other than that they are, quote, enormous. Does that mean they were like house cats, but as big as dogs? Or does it mean that they were like panthers? Did Scandinavians of this time even know about panthers? Thorstein is clearly cautious of them, as during the confrontation he warns his men to stay out of the cat's reach. As any good person will do, Thorstein attempts to negotiate first. This may have only been an attempt to protect his men, which is a good idea in my mind. But what would they have done if Thorolf had come out? Would they have just exiled Thorolf or killed him? Given Thorstein's history, probably just exiled him, but Thorolf obviously didn't want to chance it. Jokul was likely known for hitting first and asking questions later. Thorolf used an interesting tactic to barricade himself in his home, thus negating the advantage of numbers. However, he then compounds it with a smokescreen, even going so far as to press down on wool in the fire to make the smoke billow out the door. I'm not sure what his end game was. Was he hoping that Thorstein and the rest would just go away? Or was he delaying them until he could figure something else out? Did he expect his cats to be more useful? He didn't seem to order them to attack, just stand in the way of the door. Now, this idea of a delaying tactic, that's something to think about. I know in my jiu-jitsu, sometimes as an opponent has a dominant position and I'm looking for an escape, I need to engage in delaying tactics to prevent them from submitting me. So, you know, there might be a lesson here in that if you can delay your opponent when you're in a seemingly inescapable situation, sometimes opportunities arise that are otherwise unexpected. So, we do know that Thorolf was known to be a formidable warrior. This is mentioned, which is what I suspect motivated Thorstein to be extra cautious when engaging Thorolf in battle. So, we see the time-honored Viking tactic of arson. When an opponent has holed up in a location that diminishes the value of the greater numbers, presumably only one person could fit through the door at a time, then it becomes strategically worthwhile to change the battlefield to somewhere else, where the force of numbers can again be an advantage. Setting Thorolf's house on fire got rid of the cats, and then moving his men to a hidden location where they could observe the house gave Thorolf the appearance of an opening. Or I should say the opening he must have been hoping for, as that's when he makes a run for it with some of his ill-gotten gains. You know, there's a baiting tactic here, and again, my apologies, I go back to my jujitsu. This is something that we use during sparring. 
where I may bait something, make it look like I'm about to do something to get my opponent to move a certain way, thus providing an opening for me to sink a submission or create a sweep or find something advantageous for me to do. Uh, and this is what I suspect Thorstein is doing. Unfortunately, someone had to die, and if you're the unnamed Norwegian follower in an Icelandic saga, well, it's going to be you. I have to think Thorolf and the Norwegian struggled a bit in the mire as they both drowned, so perhaps there is an unintentional lesson about learning how to grapple in a way that lets you disengage from your opponent. At the very least, the overeager Norwegian was faster than Thorolf perhaps weighed down with his chests of silver, as he dropped them so he could wrap his arm around the Norwegian's head and then drag him into the swamp. You know, now that I think about it, it might be a good idea to review a lesson on how to escape a bully-style headlock and then play some games with your training partners. If you don't already have an... <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> if you don't already have an answer to this sort of thing, there are, of course, a variety of ways to do this, but one that comes to mind is the following. If you imagine Thorolf Sledgehammer standing over you, you both are facing the same direction, maybe you've come to an abrupt stop as you were chasing him, and you are standing to his right side. He, his right arm, wraps around your neck, pulling you forward and down. Maybe he's strong enough to hold you there with one arm, or maybe he needs to use his left hand to secure his right wrist and hold you in place as he continues to dash forward into the swamp. You have only seconds to act before this madman drowns you both. So what do you do? One potential option, and again, I'm not saying this is necessarily the right option, but it's certainly better than just continuing forward into a swampy death, would be to use your right hand to reach forward and block his left hip or knee. Simultaneously, your left hand hooks around his backside like a hug and grabs onto his hip. If you can't, if he's just so big that you can't reach his hip, maybe you just grab onto his clothes. You then use your entire weight to sit back to your left, pulling his body over yours as you both fall to the ground. Some people will just let go of the headlock out of surprise here. Others may be so focused on holding you that they keep the headlock as you fall to the ground. If you did the move right, you'll end in a sitting position on top of Thorolf, and let's say he held onto your head. So you're now in a situation where he's underneath you, facing right, with his right arm still wrapped around your head. He's likely trying to pull your face down into the ground as he continues rolling, but with your right foot on the ground and your left knee behind his back, you can prevent the rolling. It wouldn't hurt to bring your hands into the picture, too, to prevent your face smashing into the ground. You then snake your left arm in over his shoulder and across his neck. Your right hand presses down on your left wrist, driving your left forearm into his neck as you lift your up your head. Now try it. It's very hard for someone to keep holding you in a headlock from here. You can even put a little bit of a forward lean into it that changes the angle and makes his arms weak. Whenever the arms get above the head, it gets harder for people to hang on. You can then do what needs to be done. Chop him with your axe, stab him with your dagger, or maybe just stand up and disengage. Maybe, just maybe, you don't end up a dead, nameless Norwegian, whose only consolation to Thorstein is that you cause Thorolf to drop his silver before getting to the swamp. So, there you go. 
some strategy and tactics, and a potential headlock escape from standing thrown in. I tend to avoid talking about too many specific techniques, but this was too good of an opportunity to miss as it highlights a useful training tool and self-defense technique. Speaking of the training tool, if you analyze your matches, sparring, or footage of real-life self-defense scenarios and think about what other options there were, what mistakes were made, and what corrections could positively influence your training, uh, this of course is not meant to criticize or shame anyone, be it a competition or a survival situation. There's usually a lesson to be learned, and that's what we should use these things for. We how would we escape a mad Viking headlock that was dragging us to our swampy death? You know, the self-defense community sometimes takes themselves way too seriously, so I like these hypotheticals that are, are just a little too absurd so we don't fall into the trap of taking ourselves too seriously. I'd love to hear if you have any other thoughts, and let's avoid any silliness about nut shots and eye gouges. If self-defense was that simple, no one would ever get raped or murdered. Sure, it might work, but in the heat of the moment, with all that adrenaline running through his body, it's entirely possible and probable that Thorolf wouldn't have even felt it. Perhaps another lesson here is don't go chasing after bad guys without making sure your backup is close enough to help you. I know of more than one police officer who went chasing after a very bad man, ended up getting ambushed, and died horribly. Sometimes it's better to wait. Let your opponent exhaust themselves in the swamp, maybe set up a perimeter if it's feasible, and wait for the enemy to make a mistake. The point is, there are often multiple lessons to be learned that result in better win conditions, even in silly stories with the, about thieves with magic cats. So as always, remember, don't just talk about philosophy, but like your martial art, live it. <laughs>